welcome to Radiate Radio, your international sound wave for sit-downs, podcasts and more. So stay tuned and follow our Instagram page for the latest. Hi everyone, thank you so much for coming, all of you. Um, we're really excited to be hosting the first live event. Uh, we did one before with Casper back in April, but that had to be online, which was also a great success, but obviously we're very happy to see you all in person. So this is a collaboration with Radiate Radio, where Rehan and Elisa, and over there we have Federico and Mika uh, from the East Asia Committee. And of course, in our middle, we have Casper uh, with our guest, which we will further introduce uh, slightly later. Thank you so much again. Uh, and like I said, we will be uploading this on Radiate Radio's platforms afterwards. So if you still want to listen back to it, um, then you can do it there. All right, thank you so much for coming. We have a great guest today, Kasper Witz. Um, I think most of you probably know him, at least for those of you that have chosen East Asia as a region. Um, but could you maybe introduce yourself a little bit uh, for those that might not know you yet? Uh, yes, uh, since 2019, I've been a lecturer of East Asia studies here at Leiden University. And um, as Elisa said, most of you know me from teaching the lectures of history, East Asia, and politics, East Asia. And most of my research has to do with uh, international relations within the East Asian region, and mostly the history thereof. Uh, but I'm also very interested in the democratization uh, movements and democratization my processes and uh, protests. As all of you know, we've taken my classes. So I'm happy to uh, speak about this today with, uh, with all of you. Thank you. Okay, so today's topic is protest culture and democratization in Asia. After an introduction of the general topic, we'll be going to specific case studies and so um, the national cases of uh, South Korea, Japan, and China. And after that, we'll have a conclusion and an informal Q&A session, which will not be part of the podcast. And so the first general question uh, that we have for our introduction is, what is traditional East Asian thought about protests? Uh, that's a very broad question, but a very interesting and important one. Uh, first of all, I think there's a lot uh, of uh, traditional thought about this. Um, and that's already important to emphasize, because I think uh, almost all of us who are not from that region have uh, at least subconsciously some kind of prejudice about East Asia, that, it's a society, that these are societies where people are relatively docile and uh, obedient, which is, I think is kind of a racist stereotype of uh, East Asians generally, um, that they tend to have, be very respectful of authority and uh, good followers, but maybe not such good leaders. Uh, and I think it's very important to look at pro the histories of protest cultures in East Asia in order to subvert this prejudice that we have uh, inside of us. Um, I think traditionally in East Asian thought we have very, a lot of examples of, uh, when, of, people, of philosophers discussing when and how people are allowed to rise up, for example. And the most important exa example of this is uh, the uh, second most famous Confucian philosopher after Confucius, who was called Mencius, living about uh, 200 uh, BC. And he made clear that uh, whenever an emperor loses the mandate of heaven, so governs in a way that is not correct and loses the sympathy of the people. Uh, if that happens, so the people have the right to rise up against the emperor. And uh, he also had uh, maybe a slightly different uh, topic, but he was also very uh, forward-thinking when it came to environmental issues, for example, and spoke about the dangers of uh, deforestation, uh, erosion in the mountains, and so on and so forth. So progressive ideas in Asia in that sense have a very long uh, history. So there's nothing uh, necessarily East Asian about hierarchical structures, even though hierarchical structures is exactly what Confucianism became famous for. However, this is emphasizing certain aspects within Confucianism uh, that probably exist, but that uh, were especially emphasized because it suited the state and suited different Chinese emperors throughout history, basically from the Han Dynasty onwards. So that's from about uh, slightly after Mencius' death, but from around 200 BC onwards. Um, but there's much more sort of subversive thought to be found in uh, East Asia generally, especially if you look, for example, at Taoism. Maybe we talk a little bit more about that uh, later on. And in more modern days, I think uh, there are simply countless examples in all East, all East Asian countries of people forming uh, protest movements in order to address certain grievances, uh, people fighting for their rights, whether in the context of labor unions or wanting democracy, etc. Uh, so the next question is about the concept of democracy, because 
the main theme of this event is also about democratization. Uh, so actually, uh, from the pre-collective question, there's an audience, and then who asks about uh, what are the main differences between Western democracy and the democracies found in East Asia? And does the collective culture uh, in East Asia in any way affects or shapes the concept of democracy? Uh, it's a very good question, also a very hard one to answer. I think, um, first of all, of course, there are many different countries, many different civilizations within East Asia. Generally, I can see very little proof of any fundamental difference in the way East Asians think about democracy compared to the way we think about democracy. I think for this uh, case, it's good to look at an example of the most advanced uh, democracy in East Asia, which is Taiwan. And if you look at the way that they have pursued democratic change, it's, uh, it's entirely in line with what we consider to be progressive uh, democratic change, which means more uh, participation from the grassroots, very advanced ideas of freedom of speech, freedom of the press, uh, advanced notions of participation of women, uh, of uh, marginalized minorities, and so on and so forth. In many ways, uh, more advanced uh, today, or at least it's moving in, in exciting directions that uh, we, we in the West would learn from. So I uh, don't believe there's any fundamental difference between uh, East Asians and us when it comes to democratic ideals. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so let's move on. Uh, because uh, we understand that East Asia has a lot of diversity with its political system. Uh, and then also like for the protest culture itself, it actually uh, also contains a lot of different type of protest. So that's why uh, we, sort, we sort of our structure later, uh, so focus on South Korea's labor movement, Japan's anti-nuclear movement, and also pro-democracy uh, uh, pro movement in greater uh, China area. Let's move on to South Korea. Yeah, sounds good. All right, so of course, I think many of you know, know that South Korea is a huge uh, influence when it comes to like pop culture um, and overall soft power. And of course, I, I'm sure many of you have seen Squid Game in the past, uh, past few months. Uh, and of course, the movie Parasite has been very, very popular as well. And patterns that, um, you know, can be seen in series and movies and cultural products from Korea often often talk about the issue of economic hardships, economic inequality uh, that is, well, that permeates Korean society. So that's what we kind of want to um, move on to and uh, we're wondering, could you maybe give us a little bit of background on the labor crisis in Korea, South Korea, uh, how has it come about, how long has it been going on, and um, how can that be, or how it was that expressed, or the discontent uh, of their economic situation, how is that expressed in, uh, in protests in South Korea? Yeah, very interesting question. I think um, a lot of the things you see in popular media, popular uh, culture from South Korea is very critical of society, exactly the things that you mentioned. Um, so there's a huge debt crisis, for example, where a lot of uh, families are struggling to pay up debt, often to different banks, and in very extreme cases even to organized crime gangs, which is something that you see in Squid Game as well. Um, and a lot of this, I think, has to do with failure of labor movements in the past, in the sense that if you have a strong labor movement that, is, that manages to influence political uh, process, then laborers can use things like collective bargaining, like they very much do in this uh, country, uh, in order to sort of safeguard at least the minimum of uh, rights. And the paradox in South Korea is that the labor movement has been extremely influential in the achievement of democracy in the 1980s, for example, Plus, it's famous for being very active and uh, really rather militant. But at the same time, if you look at actual concrete successes, they've been very—they've uh, been basically few and far between. And it's the lack of success of the South Korean labor movement that explains the extremely precarious nature of workers in South Korea, where it's extremely easy to fire someone, for example, where a huge amount of people work in a very uh, unstable um, circumstances, temporary work, they can't build up any securities, uh, don't get benefits, don't build up pensions and stuff. And this is strange because in the 1980s, as the, the huge sort of popular movement arose uh, to fight for democracy against the military dictatorship, it was especially the working classes and for, sort of illegal labor unions that were a central part of this, and a central part also in creating positive change, just like it was in this part of the world. Most things that are good in our lives, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say, come from struggles from the labor movement in the past. 
Um, however, the problem in South Korean democracy was very much the way that democracy was finally achieved as a kind of compromise between conservatives in society and progressives, which meant that um, sort of the elite during the military dictatorship until the 1980s was able to maintain a lot of its elite positions and elite uh, priorities as the new democratic state was formed. So the labor movement, despite of its strength, wasn't really part of shaping the new nation. Uh, this became even worse after the uh, 1997 uh, Asian, Asian like, financial crisis, in which, uh, forced by the IMF, the, uh, South Korea was, enabled, was forced to basically enact a lot of uh, brutal economic reforms. And since then, whenever especially a conservative was in power, labor uh, union rights, uh, rights for unionization, general labor unions have been heavily suppressed in South Korea. Which brings us to the present day, that a lot of the progressive change that the labor movement uh, and the working class movement had dreamt about in order to achieve the same kind of welfare state that we have in this part of the world uh, was a complete failure. So that's, I think, how you can explain some of this, these precarious situations of characters like you see in Squid Game and Parasite. So, as you mentioned, like the South Korean government didn't really respond to the demand of the labor movement. But on the other hand, we also see like uh, in a few years ago, in a few years ago, and then when the, the South Korean president, so when people demand uh, she to resign, and then we also see like really drastic or really uh, aggressive protests. And then somehow I'm wondering, is there like any link that like or any uh, historical uh, issues that result in the really uh, drastic and aggressive characteristic of South Korean protest culture? Uh, yeah, I think uh, South Korea saw very large protests against the then uh, president, Park Geun-hye, in 2016-17. Uh, and a lot of this was an outbursting of anger against the old conservative establishment, because Park Geun-hye was in fact the daughter of the former uh, right-wing dictator, Park Chung-hee who was in power from 1961 to 1979. And the fact that she could become president again in the 2010s uh, was really an example of how sort of the anti-democratic conservative forces were still very, very prominent in South Korea, but could actually also win elections, because a lot of, especially uh, older people, had some kind of nostalgia for this uh, period. However, her uh, reign was so marked with corruption scandals and also a very big disaster called the Seawall disaster, a big ferry that sank, um, which led to an amazing outpouring of anger, which uh, I think was so extremely deeply rooted because of anger, the general sort of... Uh, a conservative influence in South Korean society and how this led to extreme corruption. So this, I think, explains some of the historic background of why these protests were so huge. And Pakune's uh, approval rating, in fact, dived to about 5%, which is really quite uh, low, obviously. Uh, however, the extent to which what is called the Candlelight Revolution that led to her uh, imprisonment, in fact, she's, still, she's in prison right now, as is her predecessor as conservative president, um, whether that actually leads to some kind of fundamental uh, change remains to be seen. In fact, we don't see much of that yet uh, at all. And the position of laborers, for example, in South Korea seems to, be, uh, seems to have hardly changed under the current more progressive president. Which kind of shows us that problems are so endemic that uh, uh, maybe, we, maybe we need another large protest movement in order to tackle those. But uh, we can't see that yet. So you don't, do you think that maybe another type of movement or another protest movement, maybe with a different approach, could bring positive change? Or are you a bit more um, pessimistic about that? Uh, no, well, first of all, I think that's what the country would need. And I think it could happen, especially because of the extremely uh, precarious nature of uh, young people today in general. So it's very hard to find good jobs, impossible to buy houses and stuff, much more even than here. Uh, for young people, and so this has to, this kind of anger has to go somewhere, right? So I can see another protest movement erupting, especially once almost inevitably a conservative will win the, win the election again. So the pendulum seems to swing back and forth uh, quite a lot there. Um, yeah, but I don't see any signs of it yet. Okay, all right. I guess right now we can move on to Japan because that also is a very interesting case. So we talked about South Korea, now we can move to the case of Japan. We decided to talk about um, the, the anti-nuclear uh, movement that uh, developed in particular anti after uh, 2011, after the Fukushima uh, disaster, for who doesn't know, after 
uh, in 2011 after an earthquake and the tsunami led to the nuclear accident, uh, to a nuclear accident in the Fukushima nuclear plant. And, um, and this um, later uh, led to a development of the anti-nuclear movement. So we would, and uh, this uh, year uh, is the 10-year commemoration of such disaster. And um, we would like to ask you what has been uh, the main impact of this disaster on civil society, on civil society in Japan. Yeah, I think the wave of the Fukushima disaster really saw a reawakening of uh, civil society and protest movements in Japan. Uh, of course, Japan, uh, unlike all the other East Asian nations, had been a democracy already since 1945. Uh, so that means that also in the 1960s and 70s you saw very large pro protests, just as you did here in Japan among students, uh, but among workers as well. However, this seemed to have died down for a long time, from the 1970s to 2011. And many people have seen a kind of reawakening of this protest consciousness in Japan. Uh, when, because of the Fukushima disaster, sort of the corruption of the elites was exposed, and just a complete mismanagement of that whole uh, of the whole nuclear problem in Japan, which led to first anti-nuclear movement, a lot of protests, uh, many Japanese cities against Japan's dependence on uh, nuclear power in general, but especially the complete lack of safety of those nuclear power plants. And very importantly is that the protests or protest movements in Japan then grew in a much broader uh, sense when a conservative prime minister returned to power in 2000. And, uh, uh, 12, Abe Shinzo, and because of his nationalist policies, the protest movement started sort of, sort of merging with some people uh, protesting from a pacifist sort of motivation and some people from anti-nuclear energy, etc., and banding together. And for the first time, we then see very large protests on the streets of Japan uh, again. However, like uh, even though this is important in cultural terms and a big change in many ways uh, in terms of actual concrete achievements. Uh, there have been very little, because you can't deny that uh, Abe Shinzo, so the Conservative Prime Minister, was extremely successful in electoral terms. So it seems that progressive change uh, manages to get a lot of people to the street in Japan, uh, but doesn't get nearly as many people into the ballot box, which is in the end more important. So the sort of silent Conservative majority uh, tends to win elections again and again and again. So it's very doubtful, actually, uh, how, to what extent progressive movements like that are able to change uh, things in Japanese society when the vast majority of people don't really seem to agree with them. Alright, um, if anyone has any like specific questions about Japan, um, make sure to submit them through this uh, QR code, and if not, like I said, you have the opportunity to ask them afterwards as well. Um, for now, I think we can move on, um, because we still have a lot to discuss, of course. Uh, I guess we cannot have a podcast about uh, protest culture and democratization without speaking about the Tiananmen Square massacre. Um, so that's what we're going to speak about now. Um, so for a little bit of background, um, in 1989, thousands of students occupied Tiananmen Square in Beijing um, in a historical display of uh, discontent or disapproval towards the corruption of the author uh, authoritarian government. And um, of course, this was not an isolated event. Uh, we had seen it before um, uh, during the, for example, with the democracy uh, wall in Beijing and um, the whole democracy movement there. Uh, however, that was in the past. And um, our question here is, China seems to be quite different from what we've spoken about, for example, in, in South Korea, Japan, but also what we'll speak about Taiwan and Hong Kong when it comes to civil society, when it comes to protest culture. Um, is it true or is it possible that um, such a protest culture that we have seen uh, before has been erased among the new generation of, of Chinese students or Chinese youngsters, uh, or has it just Sure, like merely gone underground. What is your take on that? <laughs> uh, well, first of all, it's not my position to say whether this protest culture has been erased among young Chinese people. In fact, there are some of them here. Maybe they should say uh, whether that's the case. Um, but I do think uh, we can see after the uh, Tiananmen massacre in 1989 that the absolute priority for the state has been. Uh, like all authoritarian states, regime, regime preservation, no matter what. Um, and in China, that has been very much focused on how to get the young people on your side, you know, because they realized that the large uprising that happened on Tiananmen Square, which was in fact a national uprising, not local just in the square, but it was happening in all bigger Chinese cities, 
uh, was an existential threat to the Chinese Communist Party. So, a large, already days after the massacre, Deng Xiaoping, the Chinese leader at the time, um, spoke about how there had to be sort of a uh, ideological rejuvenation of the nation in the sense that uh, young Chinese people had to simply be taught more clearly why uh, the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party, was doing what it uh, was doing. So, uh, and they did that with a, 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 a propaganda campaign called Patriotic Education, which in a way is still going on, uh, which is raising Chinese people to be proper patriots, which is all about sort of fusing the idea of party and state, so the idea that no, sorry, of party and country, really. So, which is the idea that any criticism of the Communist Party is automatically criticism of China as a nation and as a culture. So, this is very much ingrained in the sort of Chinese education system. And that makes it suddenly, a few decades later, very hard to criticize the Chinese Communist Party without being accused of being unpatriotic. And critics, like critical thinkers in China, often emphasize uh, correctly that they are in fact the patriots. That is, it can be patriotic to be critical, you know, of your government. But uh, most uh, young Chinese people today do think very fundamentally differently about this thing uh, than people did in 1989, I think, when also the student protesters in Tiananmen Square said that this was a, a patriotic uprising against the government. Uh, what the way it's portrayed. Well, it's not portrayed in history books, but the way, uh, if it was portrayed, any kind of movement like this is portrayed in China as, as anti-Chinese, anti-patriotic uh, and foreign, which makes it, makes it suddenly very hard to find any kind of language for opposition. Uh, so that's why, uh, you know, I've, I've met many very critical like, young Chinese people, but in terms of a mass movement, uh, it would just be very, very hard to carry it out. Yeah. Mm. And do you think that with that, um the perception of democracy among the new generation of Chinese uh, students, Chinese youngsters, has changed with that, or do you think it has remained the same? Among, among probably the educated elites, I think, they, they still think a lot about these things, but I would say probably average Chinese person today, uh, much less so. Also because the words authoritarian nations, uh, as we know from George Orwell, they always change words, meaning of words, right? So what democracy means in uh, co communist countries in the past already, we all know, was not quite what it meant in democratic countries. Like, you see, East Germany was officially the uh, democratic republic, right? So, uh, however, in many of those countries, people kind of laughed at it. But I think that these days, the Chinese, there's much more of an actual debate going on about what they call whole process democracy. Like how, in fact, China is a more democratic country than Western countries, for example, because we have less lobbying from special interests and stuff in China and therefore the Chinese Communist Party simply has the, uh, the best interest of its people so much at heart that that really is true democracy and the people simply do not need to any sort of Western style democracy because they have the Communist Party. Now if you have democracy as that kind of definition it suddenly becomes very difficult to have any kind of conversation about democracy because you sort of blur the lines of what that word even means. So we have one question from uh, the public and uh, we already talked about this today in our politics uh, of East Asia class but maybe um, part of the audience does not take this class so it would be interesting to mention this uh, again. Uh, uh, one person from the public is asking how important are recent uh, developments about the Peng Shui scandal? Um, how important are these developments in terms of uh, the development of an underground democratic movement and has China been successful in silencing um, these uh, underground movements in particular, uh, Me Too? That's three questions? Oh, <laughs> one question. Yeah, so the, the Peng Shui case, I don't know if anyone, if everyone has followed it, but uh, China's most famous tennis player has accused a former deputy prime minister and member of the standing uh, committee of the Politburo of uh, sexual abuse. And since then, you know, people don't really know about her whereabouts. She has reappeared in the media now, but we don't know about her well-being and so on and so forth. And it's the first sort of very large, uh, I mean, there have been Me Too cases in China in the past, but this is the first one that's really hitting right at the heart of the uh, Communist Party. So yeah, very much remains to be seen, like how this will actually uh, impact things. 
and whether also Me Too discussions will now become more common in uh, China. I think this is unlikely because already the uh, party is in overdrive now, uh, making sure that no, no debate online about this issue takes place at all. Um, at the same time, it's generally considered that the feminist movement in China under, underground, it's a bit hard to say, it's not like that they meet in secret societies or something, uh, but generally the uh, sympathy for these kind of ideas among Chinese women is very high, and therefore it's a, probably a priority of the Communist Party also to oppress it in any way uh, possible. So China's most prominent feminists are either in jail or abroad uh, today. So that's how scared the Communist Party is of uh, uh, women, basically. And it does show you, I think, also revolutionary potential is, uh, um, of this, basically, half the country's population. Also, about this topic, we have another question uh, um, whether uh, most protests in China, if they are in recent de decades, if they are motivated by a general systemic criticism of the CCP or targeting specific local situations. Uh, very much the second, I think. So there, are, there have been a lot of protests, a lot of unrest in China, uh, but the vast majority of this unrest is labor unrest, so workers being exploited. And the, the extremely poor working conditions in factories all over the country, for, uh, uh, over the country, for example, um, lack of rights that laborers have, uh, like in all communist countries, uh, actually having actually having labor unions is illegal, so workers can't really argue for their uh, just rights. So this le leads and has already led in for decades to a lot of unrest, and this is also seen as one of the major dangers of. Uh, stability in the country. So how to actually resolve these kind of worker unrest uprisings is something that the party has been struggling with and for this reason the party is now also generally focused on sort of uh, attacking like extreme wealth for example, creating slightly more uh, wealth equality because uh, these kind of working class uprisings are especially dangerous in a country that still claims to be communist of course, because if you don't have the workers on your side, who do you have on your side? Oh, yes, and we also have other questions, for example, about um, Falun Gong and other pro specific protests, but maybe we can focus on that uh, in the conclusion and the Q&A, and now, since we have limited time, go to um, the next uh, uh, part, sub-field sub, uh, within Greater China, so um, Hong Kong and Taiwan, and we found interesting that whereas protest culture seems to have disappeared in China, in mainland China, and whereas the memory of Tiananmen Square massacre seems to have disappeared, such memory has been displaced in uh, Taiwan and uh, Hong Kong, so we were wondering what role did, did this event play in the collective memory of Taiwan and Hong Kong compared to China and how such different collective memory um, is impacting their democratization movement, movements and their protest culture. Maybe the collective memory of the Tiananmen Massacre. Yes. Uh, yeah. So I think uh, we all know China wants to govern Taiwan, right? And uh, obviously they have been governing uh, Hong Kong more or less since 1997, but they were supposed to do it under a principle called uh, One Country, Two Systems, which meant that Hong Kong could keep its democratic freedoms, freedom of speech, etc. Uh, for another 50 years. Um, however, I think the Tiananmen Massacre already made a lot of Hong Kong people realize you know, that a, a, future, a future in Chinese hands was going to be very precarious. It in fact also led to uh, Hong Kong people emigrating. At the same time, Hong Kong was like the center where also the memory of the Tiananmen Massacre was kept alive. So, uh, and the one place sort of in uh, uh, in China, in fact, if we consider Hong Kong China, in which every year on June 4th there were large commemorations of the Tiananmen Massacre, which only for the last <coughs> two years, if I'm correct, have been out outlawed. Um, so yeah, it's been very important, I think, in the collective consciousness of the uh, Hong Kong people, and in Taiwan as well, although I say slightly more removed from mainland China, I'm much less aware of what's, what's happening in mainland China generally. Um, I think it's definitely colored uh, their view of China completely. And especially because in Taiwan you had relatively similar student uprisings in 1990, asking because Taiwan at the time was still a right-wing dictatorship. In 1990 there were large uh, protests asking for democracy, which were resolved entirely peacefully, and democracy was uh, established in a very harmonious way, which was a complete contrast, of course, to what had happened 
in uh, mainland China, where uh, the country had to actually had to resort to murdering its own students in order to stay in power. And I think this tremendous contrast has, has affected our view of, of uh, Taiwan, mainland China, but also of the Taiwanese itself, their identity as being uh, almost defined as in opposition to uh, mainland China as far as the government uh, goes. Uh, since you already mentioned like uh, the sort of brief trajectory of the democratization history in Taiwan, uh, and then also now Taiwan is like one of the most driving uh, democracies in East Asia. But on the other hand, so when we talk about South Korea and also Japan, uh, you just mentioned like for many of the movement, and then there's actually really little concrete outcome in the end. And then I was wondering, is there like something that Japan and South Korea can learn from the case of Taiwan that you know people can actually achieve more through their protests? Uh, yeah, very good question. And uh, probably too large to discuss today, but I even think we could learn something about uh, Taiwan's sort of examples of protests. Uh, but if you look uh, like South Korea, for example, it's it's very interesting to compare with Taiwan because the problem in South Korea is very much the democratic transition on how it took place. So as I explained before, very much uh, democratic transition was very much compromised because the former dictatorial elite had to stay in power to a certain extent in order to avoid bloodshed. While in Taiwan, the democratic uh, change was much more fundamental in the sense that conservatives from the past were still very much represented in one political party, even today. Uh, but the freedoms that were achieved were much less compromised for a variety of uh, complicated reasons. At the same time, Taiwan had a lot of uh, struggles as well with this sort of authoritarian legacy. And uh, some people sort of uh, wanting to go back to that. And there still being a political party that's very much aligned with that kind of thinking. And the uprising that we saw in Taiwan, so was it an uprising within a democratic country, but still a pro-democratic uprising in 2014, the Sunflower Movement, um, was very much aimed at sort of these vestiges of the old authoritarian elites, and it was extremely successful. So this is very much, I think, a roadmap for progressive change in general, where uh, with large sort of grassroots participation and targeting uh, leftovers from the past, uh, you can make very significant political change in sort of starting discussions uh, in a harmonious way, not using violence and getting a surprising amount of people on your side, which is what happened in uh, Taiwan. And it's in, in essence, it's all about a sort of consciousness that a democracy has to be constantly uh, reinforced, constantly improved, and that um, it, it constantly has to be refought, if you see what I mean. And that's, I think, the consciousness that's lacking in this part of the world uh, uh, a little bit as well. If you see the way that the EU was created, for example, as we all notice today, like if you look at countries like Poland and Hungary, uh, there are no mechanisms in order to sort of counter uh, dictatorial tendencies within the EU, simply because people uh, founding the EU could not weren't really self-conscious of the fact that this could happen, I think. So the idea that democracy is precarious and needs to be fought for uh, const uh, constantly against its enemies, you know, uh, doesn't really exist in this part of the world. We tend to create, see democracy sort of almost as sort of a finished products, product that needs no change um, and that will stay like this forever, you know. I think young people today are slowly waking up to the fact that this is not so much the case anymore. Uh, people of my generation definitely, I think, are extremely uh, complacent in that sense. And that's what's been so unusual, I think, in Taiwan. If you speak to young uh, Taiwanese people today, it's all about the need to strengthen their and deepen their democracy. Yeah. So not only the South Koreans and Japanese could learn from that, but we as well. Yes, so uh, now we talked about Taiwan, and uh, we will move to Hong Kong. And we would like to ask if there is um, anything that Hong Kong leaders can learn from Taiwan's approach to keeping China uh, at a distance and maintaining the status quo, or are the situations too different and impossible to compare? I think Hong Kong's leaders are learning a lot from the people in Beijing. They're not, uh, <laughs> they're not learning anything from the people in Taiwan. But uh, you probably mean democracy leaders, the democracy movement in uh, Hong Kong. Ah, yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Uh, but right now, these uh, are so marginalized, I think, that uh, uh, basically they're being shut out of all power uh, constructions in Hong Kong. So. 
Um, I think they are, they are already completely aware of the, the example of Taiwan and how uh, that's a more desirable situation, but uh, in many ways it seems that ship has sailed and that any idea of even a compromise between pro-democracy figures and um, people doing the work for, of Beijing in Hong Kong um, is, has gone back pretty much out of the window for the last couple of years. And uh, the last sort of vestiges of democracy and freedom of speech that uh, still exist in Hong, Kong, in Hong Kong are being destroyed as we speak. So, related to this, we got some questions here. You can see uh, one from Mr. Anonymous. Uh, do you think that despite the implementation of the national security law in Hong Kong, there is a chance of revival of the protest in the near future? Again, that's not my uh, position to say. So, either a Hong Kong student in the audience wants to speak <laughs> up about this, or I don't. Uh, I can't really answer it. I mean, I, it's very hard to see how, because uh, with the national security law, it's just so. Uh, this, the atmosphere is becoming so oppressive now that uh, any association with the, any sort of pro-democracy leaders, uh, they're either imprisoned or they flee abroad. So, um, at the same time, you see that the sort of democratic consciousness of the people is, is still very much alive. But what can they do against uh, the will of the uh, Chinese Communist Party? I don't know either. Do you also think that um, the Corona crisis has played a significant role in that, or in the um, I guess, well, in protest culture, the fact that was that used as an excuse, for example, uh, for you know prohibiting any type of protest? Uh, yeah, the, basically the Chinese uh, or the Hong Kong authorities, the pro-Beijing authorities in Hong Kong, uh, wasted no time using the COVID crisis in order to uh, sort of the momentum of the pro-democracy protests that were going on in Hong Kong at the time. So, uh, by, by uh, so obviously COVID was a problem, so the lockdown was in many ways justified, but it, it did also come at a very fortuitous moment for them. And also the banning of the Tiananmen uh, on the June 4th, sort of the vigil for the victims of the Tiananmen massacre, probably would have been extremely difficult to outlaw that if it had not been already for COVID, which they could say like, ah, well, it's too dangerous to gather, you know? Um, yeah. Yeah. All right, uh, are there any more questions from the audience or that pertain to Hong Kong so uh, again about the concept of democracy uh, and the difference between the West and China. Uh, so um, we said that uh, Taiwan uh, is uh, the most advanced democracy in, in East Asia, um, but China might say that uh, it is just as uh, it is f following the path of Western democracy. So how would we reconcile this difference in the? Uh, these different concepts, conceptualization of democracy? Uh, yeah, very important question, I think. As we answer this question, it's very important to emphasize or to, to stress that we should not follow the frame of the uh, Chinese Communist Party, which is that you have sort of these enlightenment ideals in the West, which talk about democracy, human rights, etc. Um, however, culturally speaking, those don't, do not really have any relevance outside of the Western world. Um, this is something you hear in Chinese propaganda constantly. Um, however, if we look critically at this idea, it simply doesn't uh, hold up, you know. Especially since we just already gave the example of a thriving democracy, which is in fact, at least according to uh, the government in Beijing, Taiwan is supposed to be 100% Chinese, right? So that already shows you that apparently uh, this kind of democracy is completely compatible with Chinese values, whatever that means. Um, also in South Korea, we do look in sort of the way the democracy was achieved, like how passionate South Koreans have fought for the democracy. Um, for them, it was not some kind of Western concept, you know. It was uh, it's a logical, almost universal desire for human beings. But this is becoming increasingly an un 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 unfashionable thing to say. Not only the Chinese government is promoting an idea that um, human rights and democracy are region-specific, so only relevant for the West and not for the East, uh, but also in the West itself, so a kind of cultural relativism and postmodernism is very common in which um, we basically don't value those ideas very much anymore, and we deny their universality. And if I can continue a little bit more, there is a very concrete example that we can give about the, the Declaration of Human Rights that was signed in 1948. Um, that generally, like in our minds, we often interpret it as a kind of, a, or we see it as kind of a Western initiative, 
Uh, but definitely the Chinese government tries to portray it as so. Already a lot of scholars have challenged that idea, but from a Chinese perspective, it's important to realize that there was a, a Chinese delegate at the uh, sort of drafting of the uh, declaration called PC Chan, generally he's called, in, in, we call him in English, um, and he was very influential sort of backstage in discussions about what should be in uh, the declarations, and he kept emphasizing democracy, and especially emphasizing that through Confucian thought, he was kind of a Confucian thinker himself, um, this was that basically democratic ideals were completely compatible with Confucian uh, thought, uh, as well as the universality of uh, the declaration was greatly uh, supported by him because a lot of, especially Christian and Islamic countries, wanted the declaration to be, have a very theological uh, sort of approach which automatically would have made it less universal and very specific to these uh, two religions. But he kept emphasizing uh, sort of the Confucian sense of centrality of humans, which of course is what the Declaration of Human Rights is exactly supposed to be. Um, so the idea that these are completely Western concepts that don't exist in Eastern thought, it's simply not true. It is true, however, that sort of PC Chang's ideals uh, are completely irrelevant if you want to study the modern-day Chinese Communist Party. Uh, but these are choices that have been made in mainland China, political choices that simply benefit the state and benefit its leaders. And there's nothing incompatible about uh, democracy and human rights when it comes to East Asian culture. All right. Um, I guess right now, like I said, you have the, the possibility to ask more questions afterwards that go to specific cases. But um, for now, I'd like to move on to a more, I guess, conclusion um, or conclusive question. Uh, because, of course, today we have been speaking about uh, protest cultures throughout East Asia and democratization. And, uh, I mean, it is uh, no surprise that East Asia has a wide variety of uh, different political systems um, and different levels of democratization. And so I was wondering um, if there is a relation or a link between the degree of democratization and the effectiveness of protests. Of course, we've spoken about it a little bit as well, but what is your take on that? Uh, yeah, I think that's very good for our conclusion, because uh, I think almost all the topics that we have uh, addressed it has something to do with the health of the general democratic uh, system, whether or not a protest movement can be uh, uh, successful. So that's why, especially in South Korea and Japan, a lot, a lot of protest movements happen, but they, uh, they often fail to really change things at the top, you know, because things seem to be so sort of immovable, so stuck when it comes to uh, leaders. And that's basically a democratic deficit that you see in those countries. There's not enough sort of grassroots input in a uh, democratic process, which means that it, it becomes harder to uh, be a healthy democracy, basically. And in a healthy democracy, protest always has a very central uh, role to play. Uh, however, thankfully, yeah, we point to the Taiwan example one more time. It doesn't have to be that way in that region. It has nothing to do with culture. Uh, it's simply political choices. And um, yeah, therefore, I think uh, well, one can be still quite hopeful for democracy uh, in East Asia and uh, maybe even in mainland China. Um, so, okay, so that's the, almost the end of our uh, podcast recording. So just like a short recap of what uh, we've discussed. At least I think the most important message that we get is actually um, we need to uh, distinguish between the political factor and cultural factor because there's nothing really cultural specific. There might be some, but in the end it still much depends about the state and also people's political consciousness uh, and also their political choices. And then, of course, because we have really limited time uh, and then we also understand that there's actually a lot of to say about this topic. There are so many details of the protests we haven't, uh, we haven't covered and then also other type of protests we, uh, we haven't talked about in this session. Um, so that's why we would like to have a recommendation section uh, for those who um, are interested in to know, knowing more about this topic. Um, so, Casper, if you want to recommend people about uh, um, some further reading uh, or article or film about this topic, uh, what would be that? Uh, yeah, that is a difficult question. <laughs> um, maybe a good place to start is, uh, I don't know if you know the uh, democracy leader in Hong Kong, Joshua Long. Uh, he's just published a book, which I think will be uh, very interesting for everyone to, uh, to read. 
uh, as well as if you're interested in mainland China, I think a lot of the opposition doesn't come from protest movements, simply because that's impossible today. Um, but critical thinking is very much happening among intellectuals, you know. And by far the most prominent among, the, among those, already known to you if you take taken history is Asia, but he's called Xu Jiangu. So that's XU, surname, and first name is uh, uh, Z-H-A-N-G-R-U-N, right? Yeah. So, Xu Jiangrun, I think it's very complicated, but uh, very much worth delving into because he has an extremely profound criticism of the Chinese system from a very Chinese perspective. So, he doesn't, other dissidents in China sometimes criticize the system from a very sort of pro Western perspective, uh, but he does it almost from a traditional Chinese perspective. So, uh, drawing on Chinese tradition, he tries to criticize the Chinese uh, um, Communist Party. And uh, I think sort of maybe I'll leave it there for. All right, enough to uh, to explore, I guess, after uh, after this event. Any more questions? Yeah, we can go to the slide. <laughs> uh, so going back to Hong Kong, um, we talked about the ideological differences, uh, but we would like, from a more pragmatical perspective, um, uh, the public has does Hong Kong's geographical position compared to Taiwan play a role in the lack of possibility to democratize? To the multi, for the of the, the, the state. Well, I think the, the geographical position sort of hammers home the points. It's really quite obvious that uh, they are in a difficult position, geographically speaking. <clears throat> but the biggest problem, of course, is the political situation that they're in front since 1997. They are basically just an administrative unit of the People's Republic of China that happen to have some special rights. Uh, basically, the authority has been returned to Beijing at that. Uh, at that time. So in that sense, that's where there's the complete lack of, of, of uh, movement comes from. Why is such a different situation from Taiwan? Even though the Chinese government, of course, would like to recreate the situation in Taiwan as well. Uh, however, Taiwan is an entirely sort of independent, uh, uh, let's just call it a country. I'm already uh, <laughs> criticizing the Chinese on that. And it's already, it's, it, it's the completely de facto independence, independent in all ways. So it just can't be compared to Hong Kong in that, uh, in that sense. But that also sadly means that there's a lot of things that the international community can do uh, to help Taiwan and to stimulate Taiwan's democracy. But in order to help Hong Kong, it's a much more difficult uh, situation what actually to do. And, and um, do you think that uh, staying on Hong Kong, uh, do you think that uh, from the same pragmatic uh, perspective, do you think that the result of the, the breakdown on the protests in Hong Kong uh, recently um, the successful results from the Chinese perspective, uh, would we influence China's attitude maybe becoming more aggressive or more um, active towards uh, Taiwan? Yeah, I do think sort of the, destruct, the, the destruction of democracy in Hong Kong should be seen as, a, uh, as in a sort of general pattern of uh, expansive or expansionist authoritarianism from the Chinese side. In that it's Hong Kong first, and very much next on the list should very much be uh, be Taiwan. So there's absolutely no doubt that the, the government in Beijing wants to uh, uh, govern Taiwan in the future. It's just how to go about achieving that. That's the main, the main um, question. So and not only that, but I think authoritarian expansionism is happening all over the world now. Not just concerning with conservative China, but we can see it in places like uh, Poland, Hungary, and Turkey and stuff. Um, and also I think Chinese influence in those regions is going to grow. So we can see uh, Hong Kong in, in many ways is the first uh, hurdle in, in that uh, project that the Chinese government is engaged in. And as for now, governments in Western Europe aren't really uh, focused yet on, that, uh, on countering that. Yeah, so I think that now you also address a question that we just had from the public. With the rise of China and its system challenging liberal world order, is it realistic to expect the CCP's influence to be um, exported abroad? Uh, yeah, that's in many ways already happening um, with uh, also the eagerness of Western countries to make themselves financially and economically independent from China, which is pretty much to the core of Chinese strategy. It's very, it has for decades very much been facilitated by Western governments. Although people are now are waking up to it, uh, we can see that in the, uh, 
for example, Germany, like only yesterday uh, released, the new, the new government has released its ideas on China, which are fundamentally different from what the previous government uh, was doing. So people are generally more critical about it, but uh, yeah, like, uh, in a way, a, a country that has uh, entirely different values from us, so an authoritarian country becoming one of the main economic superpowers, uh, is of course going to influence the entire global system. Uh, there's no doubt about it in all ways, so it will uh, very much affect democracies in our part of the world uh, too. And do you think this might have any implication for academia in the West? Um, it's hard to say. I mean, I think the tendency of, uh, of making universities in the West more and more financially dependent also on Chinese money, people are now sort of questioning that, so there's definitely a sort of a counter-reaction. So I, I simply don't know really where this is going. In terms of actually studying China, it's now already the situation is much more difficult even than five uh, years ago. Because of the national security law, for example, you um, like criticizing China abroad, you can now get even arrested whenever you uh, arrive in Hong Kong or in China, in fact. So which is kind of a big problem for anyone teaching about China in universities. Uh, not for me though, because I never criticize the Chinese <laughs> <laughs> And uh, uh, about Taiwan, uh, we have many questions about the future of the island. We know that you cannot predict the future, but for example, do you think, um, what is your expectation about uh, the possible confrontation between uh, China and uh, Taiwan? Can, can Taiwan uh, actually defend itself from uh, China in case of confrontation? Um, yeah. Yeah, a very crucial question would be what the rest of the world does, uh, right? Which, uh, it's very, um, uh, and there's a lot of ambiguity in the sense, uh, will the United States fight on, on uh, Taiwan's behalf? But I think the way things are going, like very recently, with much more aggressive language from Beijing towards Taiwan and uh, hints at uh, violently taking the island, I think um, there's much more awareness now of this topic also here, where again, the German, German government yesterday was an example that for the first time, sort of in a a coalition agreement, they actually speak about the need to, of democratic nations to uh, side with Taiwan and to have stronger uh, connections, uh, build stronger connections between the EU and Taiwan. Uh, the United States is doing the same, placing more military in Taiwan, for example. So all these things are definitely moving into Taiwan's... So, strange enough, paradoxically enough, as China seems to become more and more aggressive towards Taiwan, the world's democratic world does seem to be rallying around uh, Taiwan. And until now, Chinese government has never attempted any kind of invasion of Taiwan because they know it, be kind of it can have extremely disastrous consequences and even lead, lead to a third world war. And the more engaged the democratic world is with Taiwan, the more unlikely it will be that the Chinese will risk everything on that gamble. Okay. All right, then we can conclude. Um, well, first of all, thank you so much for, for being here. Thank you for answering all our questions and uh, answering them so thoroughly as well. Um, and of course, thank you all for being here as well. Uh, I hope you enjoyed. Of course, if you want to know more about the topics, uh, go check out the, the books and the, the tips that Casper gave before. Um, yeah, thank you so much and uh, have a good evening. <laughs>